Father, in your word, you give us pictures of what it is to be content in you. One day we will be a family around the marriage supper of the Lamb, fully content in you, rejoicing together in the new world that you've recreated. That is our picture of divine contentment, a family around a meal. And we want to live out some of that divine contentment even now as you give us grace. So we pray for your spirit to make that a reality in our lives because that cannot happen apart from the movement of the spirit. And we know that you'll answer our prayers because you have bought them with the blood of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about divine contentment and I'm going to get a bit of a running start into the subject. There's a concept in philosophy called a control question. And control questions are things we all have in the back of our mind. We all have them. They're big questions about life. They're not questions that can be answered very quickly. And we gather information from lots of different domains of knowledge to help us answer these big questions about life. So I'll give some examples to help us get the idea. I have a professor at school, Dr. Van Hooser, and here's how he tells the story. Dr. Van Hooser says that when he started his graduate studies, he put on his backpack and he flew over to Cambridge to start his graduate studies with one big question in mind, what does it mean to be biblical? And that's a perfect example of a control question because you can't just Google that. Siri isn't going to like tell you what it means to be biblical. So he starts his graduate studies and reads lots of books and takes lots of classes and synthesizes all of that information and puts it at the feet of this big question, what does it mean to be biblical? That's a perfect example of a control question. And we all have control questions. You all do this. You have big questions about life that take a long time to mull over and you're always pulling information to it. Philosophers are just really self-conscious about what their projects are. Here's another example and this will get us into our topic. This is a funny story. My dad went to a theology conference and theology conferences are very boring. If you've never been, don't go. Uh, you get up and you like read your paper. You just read it. You don't do stories or rhetorical flourishes. It's just a paper. And then at the end, there's question and answer, but it's, it's not fun. It's like I think point three was a bit exaggerated or point two A needs historical whatever. So, but one guy, one guy, he came to this uh, theology conference and at the end of every question and answer section, he would raise his hand. He was from Africa and he would say, Oh, thank you. Very informative. How does this help me love my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And at the beginning, people kind of chuckled because that's, that's not an academic question. But by the end, that was the funnest question. Everyone waited for the guy to ask his question. So, perfect example of a control question. He clearly flew over, came to the conference with a big question in mind. You can't Google, how do you better love your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You take lots of information from lots of different papers and synthesize that and help you think about how do you love your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? This is all to say that this morning, the sermon is something of a status report on a control question that I have. A control question that I've had at seminary is something like, it can be worded something like, what does it look like to be spiritually healthy? What does it mean to be spiritually healthy? It can't just mean you read a lot of theology books because then you could just read more and get spiritually healthy. That can't be the answer. In other areas of our lives, we have clear standards of, spirit, of health. Run this fast, do this many push-ups, eat this diet, and that's healthy. There are standards of financial health and standards of relational health, but in spirituality... Maybe sometimes we get really vague or theological principles show up right away and we don't talk about 
crystalline, hard standards of what it looks like to be spiritually healthy. So that's a, a control question. And in thinking about that, one book I came across is the book uh, called The Art of Divine Contentment. And The Art of Divine Contentment was written by Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan in the 1600s in the period of Protestant scholasticism. And he wrote this book, The Art of Divine Contentment. And he's dealing with a similar issue. I want standards for how I know my soul is healthy. My soul needs to know it is healthy. And he says, resting in God, contentment in your relationship with the Father, a contentment that transcends life, is a necessary, if not sufficient, component of spiritual health. Resting in God is a necessary part of whatever it means for the pie of spiritual health. And here's his logic. Listen to his logic. This is Thomas Watson's logic of why this is such an important virtue. Because this is the last thing Jesus promises before he dies. In the upper room, and you can kind of put yourself in the upper room, in John 14, the city around him is teeming with violence. They're about to use the torture method of the cross on him. Satan has come against him and the Father is going to make him drink the cup of wrath. That's, that's the setting of this dark room and Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give, but I give and it will not be taken away. My peace I give to you. Jesus followers, you, the Jesus people, the people who are of Jesus, the peace that I as Jesus have with the Father, even in this moment, you can have, not another peace like it, the way I rest in the Father as the Son is open to you if you're a Jesus person. And then he prays and then he dies. So Thomas Watson reads the Jesus narratives as saying this is a key thing that Jesus wants us to get. Divine rest in God. And then Paul in Philippians 4. So this is our passage we're going to look at this morning. In Philippians 4, Paul says, I have that. I'm a Jesus person. I'm trying to follow him and I have the rest in God that he promised I really am content in life. I can face crucifixion and I can face abundance and I'm content in God. And you Philippians and you Valley Brookers should mimic me in this. So Thomas Watson then goes over this passage and I have found a lot of help in this passage. So hopefully this morning we're going to go over this passage. I'm going to pull up standards of spiritual health that have been important to me and hopefully uh, some of it is helpful to you also. Or at least you'll be able to see why it's important to me. But this is a personal report on what I think are helpful standards for my own standard of health and my own soul. Do we get what's going on? That's the logic of this morning. So I'm going to read the text and then we're going we're to walk around in the text for like a half hour and pull up some of these standards of spiritual health. That's our plan. So here we go. Here is the text. Philippians 4 starting in verse 4, 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paragraph 2. Finally, brothers, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is uh, true, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, if, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paragraph 3. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you now at length have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This has been the word of God for the people of God. So that's the passage. Now, I'm going to make a bunch of comments about the passage and pull up those standards of spiritual health. Sometimes when I make a lot of comments about passages, people say I speak quickly. So this is what you guys need to do. You need to listen quickly. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I'm not going to slow down. Here we go. Here we go. The first thing about the passage. Here's, here's the first thing to think about the passage. The context of the passage. Here's a word of context about the passage. Paul is writing this letter from jail. He's dictating it to an amanuensis who is sending it from jail to the church at Philippi who are being persecuted. Social persecution and maybe even a little physical persecution. But life is getting socially hot for the church at Philippi and he is in prison writing to them. That's the context of the letter. And I just read to you uh, the end of the letter. This is the last chapter, chapter 4. And what Paul does in this section is he has a lot of short, choppy, grammatically disconnected moral imperatives. Rejoice. Be reasonable. Pray. Don't be anxious. And so they're grammatically disconnected, but in this section of the letter, they're all connected by a larger theme, which is a common way of writing in this part of history, first century, and it's common for writing in the New Testament. You can probably, if you've read through the New Testament a couple times, you can probably think of a ton of places where Paul or James or John or Jesus give a lot of short, choppy injunctions, but they're all connected by a bigger theme. That's, that's a way of writing in the first century, and that's what Paul is doing here. At the end of his letter, he's giving lots of short injunctions that all have to do with this bigger theme of resting in the peace of God during persecution. You see that? So that's the big context of what's going on. Now, we're going to talk about the structure of the passage. So that's where the passage fits, but now how do you break it up? The one theme of being at peace in God is actually talked about in three paragraphs. And I, I demarcated that when I read it. I said paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three. And you can tell it's three different paragraphs because at the beginning of verse eight, there's a part of speech which is translated finally, and that's saying, okay, new thought. Same theme of I'm in jail and you're under hot water, but we need to be at peace. But finally, so thought number two, and then you can tell that paragraph three is starting in verse 10 because the subject of the sentence changes. So beforehand, Paul was saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. And then in 10, he says, I am at peace because you have revived your concern for me. Not that you weren't concerned, but now you have opportunity. So you can tell from the grammar that the one theme is in three paragraphs. The first paragraph is about how the peace of God impacts you internally. What does the peace of God have to do with your inner life, Philippians? The second paragraph is about how the peace of God impacts your external life. And the third paragraph is about Paul's personal example of how I, as a Jesus follower, have the peace that he promised. That's the one theme broken into three paragraphs. Okay? Now pause. I'm timing out from the sermon right now. This isn't in the sermon. What I'm doing here with the context and the structure I'm trying to model for you how to do Bible study. I don't think a good sermon is just exhortation, saying this is what the Bible says. I think a helpful sermon also illustrates explanation. Not just exhortation, but explanation. 
This is how you should go about reading the Bible. Looking at the context and breaking it, breaking the structure down, and then looking at each sentence in the structure in the context. Okay? So this isn't just saying this is what the Bible says. This is how to wrestle with what the text is. And I think that's a more helpful sermon. Okay, unpause. Back to the sermon. That's how you're supposed to read it. Now we're going to do it. We're going to jump through these three paragraphs. We're going to look at what, how the peace of God impacts your internal life, how the peace of God impacts your external life, and then Paul's personal example. Okay? And I'm not going to speak slowly. Here we go. First paragraph. Paul lists three attributes, joyfulness, reasonableness, and prayerfulness, as personal qualities of people who are at rest in God. So look at your text. It's in the bulletin. You can see Paul lists. These are the three qualities. Rejoice in the Lord. Be reasonable. Pray. Don't be anxious, but pray. And the peace of God will be made known to your hearts and minds. Now, the peace of God there is not in a condition. It's not saying if you do these three things, then God will gift you some peace. He's not looking down and saying, oh, look, you were reasonable today, but you weren't prayerful, so I'm not going to let you be peaceful. It's saying, because it's a continual present tense, he's saying, the people who have the peace of God, the people who are walking in what Jesus promised, these are the traits that mark you. If you are a person at peace with God, you will be joyful and reasonable and prayerful. It's a continual thing, not a conditional thing. These are three traits of the person at peace. Now, the question, one question uh, might be, why these three attributes, Paul? It's not bad. No one's going to argue and say, no, I don't think that's right. But you might ask why, why these, like that's good, joyfulness, reasonableness, and prayerfulness, but why these three? And this is uh, one reason reading commentaries as you study a passage is very helpful. I think the commentators bring some, some light to that question, why these three attributes? Well, here, this is interesting. There's an intertestamental book called the Book of Wisdom. The Book of Wisdom is not in your Bibles. The Book of Wisdom is in the Roman Catholic canon and the Eastern Orthodox canon. The Book of Wisdom is like a Hellenistic version of the Book of Proverbs. It gives kind of moral advice, but it's not in our Bibles. And in the Book of Wisdom, there's a scene. This is like a Bible story, but not in the Bible. Uh, I don't think it is. And in this scene, here's what's going on. There's some young Greeks, and they make a, a crown of roses, and they're young and they say, our lives are like these roses. They're short and bright, but when they die, they're over. That's what life is like, short and bright and like a rose and it's over. And then these young Greeks say, let's go rough up those Jews. Let's persecute those Jews who believe in God and the continuation of the soul. And when we rough them up, let's see if they're still joyful and reasonable and prayerful then. So Paul might be referencing or making an allusion to this book of wisdom where Jews who believe in God are under trial and they need to maintain joyfulness and reasonableness and prayerfulness. Now, I don't think that means the book of wisdom should be in the Bible, but that's interesting. That's an interesting reason why Paul, in his mind, connects these three attributes as necessary parts of what it means to be at peace in God. Now, even if the book of wisdom, that allusion isn't there, what book is Paul clearly quoting? Where do these three words clearly show up in your Bible? The book of Psalms. Paul clearly quotes the book of Psalms all the time. And you can't read Psalms without hearing, Rejoice in the Lord. Let the presence of God make you happy. And be reasonable. As you talk with people and as conflict shows up, be kind and charitable. Those are other translations of this word. Be kind and charitable in your conflict. 
You can't read the book of Psalms, obviously, without being told to pray. It is a prayer book. So whether Paul is referencing the book of wisdom or not, he's clearly referencing the book of Psalms. Does that make sense? Why in Paul's head, he's a guy who is steeped in the Psalms. And so he says, if you are at peace with God, you're going to look like the book of Psalms. You're going to be peaceable and prayerful and rejoice in the presence of the Lord. So here is, I have, a, I have this, I have this uh, excerpt here from Jonathan Edwards' journal. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a theologian in the 1700s, and he wrote this as a young man about a girl he liked. <laughs> and so I think it's, I think it's really funny because he like, grew up to be this big theologian, but this is him like smitten over Sarah Pierpot, who he ended up marrying Sarah Edwards. And she is a positive example of these three attributes. This is what it looks like to let the peace of God cause you to rejoice and be reasonable and be prayerful. So he writes this about her, and it's... it's, uh, it's <laughs> It's kind of funny. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or another invisible, comes and fills her mind with exceedingly sweet delight. She rejoices in the Lord and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. You could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world lest she should offend that great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness and calmness and a universal benevolence of mind. She's reasonable in her speech. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. She loves to be alone walking in the fields and groves and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Her life wasn't any easier than yours. She has just as much anxieties in her life, but she isn't anxious about them. She's prayerful. She walks alone with God. So Sarah Edwards is a positive example of these three attributes and it's kind of cute that Jonathan wrote that in his journal and we got his journal. <laughs> so I said the goal is to come up with clear, crystalline, concrete standards of spiritual health. That's what I'm on the mission to do. <clears throat> so I think we've looked at the first paragraph enough to get those standards. I'm going to pull up some clear standards of spiritual health. Here they are. Here's three that I've come up with. See if, see if this makes sense with the text. The text is right in front of you. See if you can track my thought to how I got these. Okay? One sign of spiritual health is the recurring presence of emotional gladness that comes from the presence of God. Letting the presence of God make you actually emotionally happy in a way that other people notice is a sign of spiritual health. And if that isn't true of your life, maybe you have to ask a hard question. One sign of spiritual health is a reasonable, charitable, kind, calm disposition that is particularly present in conflict. Whether that's religious persecution or just conflict. Philippians, let your calmness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If the presence of God doesn't make you calm, even in conflict, maybe you have to ask yourself a hard question. One sign of spiritual health is possessing a natural inclination to speak with God when tried. When life is hard, whether that's religious persecution or just hard life, is your immediate inclination to self-medicate and to get through the problem by yourself? Or is your immediate inclination to talk to God and say, this is hard and it's not, it's, he's not going to take it away, but you talk with God about why life is hard. If your soul doesn't naturally move there, maybe you have to ask yourself a hard question.
Paragraph two. So that was the first paragraph. Now we're talking about the if there is anything paragraph. Katie calls it the whatever paragraph. Whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, there's eight adjectives there. If there is anything noble, think about these things. Okay, so it's in, it's, look at the text in there. That's the paragraph we're dealing with. <coughs> and as I read commentaries on this passage, I did a whole uh, 180, a complete 180. I had always read this passage, and if you are raised in church or raised by a pastor, this passage comes up a lot. <laughs> but it's, it's, I had always just naturally read this passage as if there is anything good in Scripture or whatever is true about the Bible or whatever is honorable about the gospel, think about these things. I had always just taken this as Paul saying, think about spiritual things. But as I read the commentaries, academic and application commentaries, all of the commentaries uh, unanimously point out that Paul is not saying here, think about spiritual things all the time. There are things in the Bible that say you should think about spiritual things, but that's not what he's saying here. The commentators point out that Paul is saying, if there is anything good in the world, whatever is true around you in Philippi, if there's anything honorable in Philippi, think about those things. And so here's their reasoning. Here's, here's the reasoning of the commentators for why Paul isn't talking about think about spiritual things all day. It's find goodness in the world around you. One, the first word in this paragraph, which is translated finally, is a hard disjunctive part of speech. He's saying we were talking about spiritual things like joyfulness and prayerfulness, but finally, and that's a hard word, we're talking about something different. So that's one reason why it's, it's not talking about necessarily spiritual things. Another thing is the verbs in this paragraph are sifting verbs. If there is anything good at dinner, eat that. Whatever is good at the store, buy that. So he can't be saying, if there is anything good about Jesus, think about those things. Whatever is honorable about God, think about those things. It's sifting verbs. He has to be saying, think about the life around you, Philippians. Whatever is honorable about Philippian society and Philippian culture and Philippian art, Find the goodness in the world around you and think about those things. And a third reason why this is not talking about think about spiritual things all day, it's saying find the goodness in the world around you, is because this is actually copied, not copy and pasted, but it's clearly referencing Stoic philosophy. So remember in Acts 17 when Paul goes to the Areopagus and he's debating with the philosophers? Some of the philosophers there were Stoics. And this is advice they would give. They would say, if there's anything good in the world, find the good things in the world and think about that and you'll be a happier person. Think about the good things in the world. Gordon Fee, he's one of the commentators who, uh, he's really good. Gordon Fee, he comments on this passage. He said, if Paul hadn't written these words, I would have never believed that Paul would have believed this. This sounds just like what the Stoics say. If there's anything good in the world, Think about the good things in the world. So look what Paul is doing. He's copy and pasting moral philosophy from the world and putting it in his letter. And that piece of moral philosophy says, if there's anything good in the world, think about those things. There is good in the world. Does that make sense? This isn't a think about spiritual things all day text. This is a find the good in the world around you text. Now, the next question if, if, you're, if you're wrestling with this text, imagine you're me in your small apartment and you're thinking, how, what are signs of spiritual health? Okay, this passage is talking about uh, finding good in the world around you. The next question is, why is that like a clear sign of someone at peace with God? If you're at peace with God, why does that necessarily mean you're going to find good in the world around you? 
How do, how do those two things go together so clearly in Paul's mind, right? Like, that's good advice. Find good in the world around you. But Paul is saying that's the mark of a person who's of Jesus. If you have the Jesus piece, you're going to find good in the world around you. Well, this is, there's more theologians who've, who've thought about that exact question. So here's what some theologians have said about that specific question. These, this is what uh, Bonhoeffer said. Bonhoeffer wrote about finding the good around, in the world around you in Nazi Germany. Okay? He lived in Nazi Germany and he's saying you need to find the good in the world around you. Everything around you was made in God's good world by people made in his image. Therefore, by definition, it can't all be bad. Remember Genesis? God said the world is good and I have made man in my image. So whether they know it or not, everyone in the world is reflecting the glory of God. You can't dismiss it all as bad because it's in God's good world made by people in the image of God. Here's what Joe Rigney says. He co-wrote a book with John Piper and these, uh, that's where these quotes come from. Joe Rigney says, Any standard of holiness that doesn't come from God is unholy. And any standard of separation that doesn't come from God is to separate yourself from God. The Bible doesn't tell you to separate yourself from the world. If you've done that, you've made up a standard of separation that doesn't come from God. So you've separated yourself from God. The Bible's standard is to enjoy the good things of the world. And if you're more holy than God, you're actually not holy. That's Joe Rigney's reasoning. Someone at peace with God will enjoy God's command to enjoy the good things in the world. That's Rigney's thought. Here's Piper's thought. People who don't, this is a complicated sentence. <laughs> people who don't enjoy parts of cultures created by people created in the image of God can't enjoy God. To enjoy God fully means to enjoy the good bits of the things even his unredeemed creatures make. If you love God, you are going to love to see his attributes reflected wherever they are, even when non-Christian cultures reflect those attributes. There is good in the society of Philippi, and there's good in the culture and the art and the literature and the ideas and the philosophy of Philippi. And if you love God, you're going to rejoice when you see the goodness reflected in even those parts of culture that are created by people not redeemed. Does that make sense? There are good parts of America. There are good parts of American society and culture and if you love God, you're going to rejoice when you see him reflected in the world. <coughs> so, standard of spiritual health. I think I've done the research. I read the, I read the commentaries. I read the theologians. I've got an idea in my head. I'm in my apartment. I'm thinking it through. I go, oh, that makes sense. Now I can do the standard. I can make a standard of spiritual health, which is what my goal was. Here's my standard. A sign of spiritual health is the practice of finding good in non-Christian art, ideas, culture, and people which can be celebrated and enjoyed. Or conversely, a sign of spiritual illness is retaliation or separation. It would be really easy for the Philippians to say, we're being persecuted, so we're going to fight back. Or, we're being persecuted, so we're going to cloister up and run away. If you do either of those things, you aren't enjoying the peace of God who tells you to enjoy the world. Paul is saying, Philippians, it is imperative. If you want to be Jesus people, if you want to people, be people who have the peace that Jesus promised on his last night on earth, you need to enjoy the world. You can't retaliate and you can't separate. And if you have in your heart a standard of retaliation or separation, you might have to ask yourself a hard question. 
Third paragraph. So now, Paul says in the third paragraph, I'm glad that you've revived your concern for me. I mean, you were always concerned, but now you have opportunity to give me money because I'm in prison. And then he says, and it's not that I even need anything because I have the peace. The peace that I've been talking to you about for these last two paragraphs, I am at peace with God. I know the secret of being brought high and being brought low and having plenty and having nothing. I can face any circumstance through Christ who strengthens me. So from a, from a sermon logic, this paragraph should have come first because this paragraph is the heart of what divine contentment is. The previous two paragraphs were the beat of what the heart does. This is the root of divine contentment. The free, previous, previous two paragraphs were the fruit of divine contentment. So Paul is saying, what I've been telling you, those are attributes of people with peace. Look at me. I, I have the peace. Look at how I live. If you've seen me walk around in, Philipp, in Philippi, look at how I live. This is the heart of what it is. Here's how Thomas Watson defines divine contentment in his book, which you can get on Amazon for a dollar. <laughs> Here's how he defines his... Uh, the attribute of divine contentment. Divine contentment is that sweet disposition of the soul whereby the peace of communion with God is made known to the saint and the passing troubles and joys of this world fall faintly out of color by comparison. The heart of divine contentment is letting the substance of this relationship cast a shadow on everything else. And notice that Paul and Thomas Watson, don't, they don't give arguments for saying this is how you have to be because the painting of a picture of living a life like that is the argument. You don't need to argue for beauty. The beauty of this type of life is, a, is its own apologetic. Don't you, doesn't everyone want to be this way? To let the peace of your communion with God color the rest of your life? Even non-Christians, this is attractive the, rea the idea of trying to live this way. So you don't need to give an apologetic. The beauty is its own apologetic. Now, it has to be said that divine contentment does not mean pretending life is really easy. Divine contentment isn't running away from the cross. Divine contentment is resting in God on your cross. The world will crucify you. Whether that's religious persecution or because life is really, really hard, you will get crucified. And divine contentment is being on the cross in the peace of God. Thomas Watson has a long chapter, in, it's a short chapter in the book about all the appropriate times in the Bible when people weep. It is appropriate to weep at the brokenness of the world. That doesn't mean you're giving up divine contentment. That means that when you're recognizing that you're on the cross, Underneath that is still some type of rock of my relationship with God is the thing that is giving me peace even while the nails are going through my hands. Okay, so I'll tell two stories and then I'll end because I had my foot on the gas pedal for a while, so I'll tell two stories. <laughs> uh, these are stories <coughs> of examples of abandoning divine contentment. The first is I uh, knew a couple once who were multimillionaires, not just doing well. The legit multimillionaires. I lived in their mansion for a little bit, and their mansion, yeah, for, for three months, and their mansion was much bigger, their first floor was much bigger than the house I grew up in. And they had three, I'm trying to play up how much money these, this couple had. They had three mansions, and three sports cars, and a big yacht. And uh, one day, the yacht insurance fell through, so he was on the phone, the husband of the house was on the phone 
trying to get his yacht insurance re-upped. He wanted more things covered for less amount of money, <coughs> and he didn't get it. His yacht insurance wasn't uh, the plan he wanted, and so he got really nasty and mean. His divine contentment was taken away and really cruel to everyone in the house for a whole week. And we knew it was just because the yacht insurance didn't work out the way you wanted, but really cruel and snappy and quick with his tongue because the yacht insurance didn't work out. And then we went to church. We went to Saturday night services. So we went to Saturday night service, and I was next to him. And you know what song we sung? It was, It Is Well With My Soul. So I was thinking, watching him sing it as well with my soul after being cruel because the yacht insurance didn't fan through, thinking this is so ironic. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Here's another story. This is a story that Tim Keller tells. Tim Keller uh, just retired, but when he was a young pastor, he was just starting out. He was a pastor in the South, and there was a family in the church. Their middle school girl was kind of acting up in a bad attitude. So they brought her in to talk to the pastor, and the pastor said, well, don't, you know, you know the gospel. God loves you, you know, that you have a relationship with the father. She goes, yeah, yeah, I know all that. But what does that matter if none of the boys will look at me? And so Thomas, or, uh, not Thomas Watson, uh, Tim Keller points out, that's not divine contentment. Your, your divine contentment rests in the middle school boys looking at you. Okay, so I'm telling those two stories because those are both really easy stories to look at how ridiculous. They gave up divine contentment over yacht insurance and middle school boys. Okay. The measure you use unto others will be measured against you. Any time you walk out of divine contentment because of a trial or a treasure in this life, you look equally ridiculous. Saying that my relationship with the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, triune God of love is nice, but I'll start resting in that once he starts acting the way he's supposed to. Or once job cools down, once this semester is over, then I'll start really taking peace in this. You look equally as ridiculous as saying, I'll wait till my yacht insurance comes through or the middle school boys start looking at me. Resting in divine contentment can't wait. A standard of spiritual health is continually walking in this, not pretending that you aren't being crucified, but letting this be the rock you're walking on as you're being crucified. And if you don't live that way, maybe you have a hard question to ask yourself. I'm going to pray. Father, when we talk about our relationship with you, we don't want to talk vaguely. We want to talk concretely about what it means to love and be loved by you. And a picture of that is your son on the cross, even as he is crucified, resting in you. That comes out in our lives in being joyful and reasonable and prayerful and loving the good parts of your world. Where we have failed, we ask for your spirit to give us strength to improve. We want to love you and be spiritually healthy people. So send your spirit to make us that way. And we know you'll answer that prayer because you bought our prayers with the blood of your son. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.